The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. It's good to see everybody tonight, by the way, and glad to be in God's house and see all of you here for the supper tonight. So we'll open our Bibles now, if you would, to the book of Exodus, chapter 28. And when you have found Exodus, put your finger there and then turn to Hebrews, chapter 5. And this evening in our study of the Old Testament sacrifices, we take another step in our understanding of the sacrificial system. We are seeking the Savior in the sacrifices, and correspondingly, we've been through all five sacrifices uh, in the Old Testament, 20 sermons to go through there uh, in these, through these offerings, in which we've seen the many, many different ways uh, that Jesus Christ is shown in these offerings and the purpose of them in Israel's worship of Jehovah God. These five offerings are a detailed picture of the work of Christ in redemption, showing the importance of his life and of his death, and the sacrifice of his life, it's the willingness to give his life to the Father in subordination and perfect obedience. And he fulfilled the law in every respect to earn righteousness, a righteousness that's alien to us. And by that I mean a righteousness outside of us, nothing that we can draw on that's in ourselves. But Christ earned that righteousness by being pleasing to his Father, and that is demonstrated in the sweet savor offerings. And then his death for sin is pictured in the non-sweet savor offerings. And in those, we have a picture of Christ's satisfaction for sin, that through his sacrifice, the wrath of God is satisfied, our guilt is taken away, and we are forgiven. And upon the reception of him as our Lord and Savior, by our faith in him, that righteousness that he earned in his life is imputed or charged to our account for our justification. But there is still another offering that we need to discuss. These other offerings that we've been talking about over these several months are, were daily sacrifices. These were done continually for the people. But there was one more offering that was made on the holiest day of the year. And it's, it's not different in character from all of these other offerings. In fact, uh, the offerings that are made on this day are a part of those offerings, but this one is different because of timing and significance. This is the Day of Atonement, or simply known to the Hebrews as the day. And it was the culmination of all the other sacrifices that set forth Christ's redemptive work in a, in a striking way. As he substituted his life for ours, he expiated guilt and propitiated God's wrath. Now before, though, we get into a study of the Day of Atonement, which we will do, we're going to look at the priest, the one who made the sacrifice on that day, and his activities were integral in the representation of Christ's work. The sacrifice is emblematic of Christ, and so is the work of the priest in giving that sacrifice, and what we learn from the Word of God, that Christ is a better sacrifice and he is a better priest because he does both of these. He is the offering and the one who offers. Now this evening we combine this teaching with our Lord's Supper observance. And I don't think there's anything that 
fits the Lord's Supper better than to do this. To look at the Old Testament and that worship which was shown in symbols. The Old Testament shows it in symbols. And here we come to the New Testament and we have a New Testament symbol of Christ's death. And that, of course, is the Lord's Supper. Now, every part of tabernacle worship was about Christ, from the willing offerings of the people when they brought their gold, their silver, their brass, their precious stones. Then there was the fabrication of the furnishings. There's fences and bars and boards and altars and coverings and censers and lampstands and pots and utensils. And all of that has something to say about our Lord Jesus Christ. But so also is the priest. Since he's the one who made the sacrifices, it's important for us to understand what he did, what his work was before we study this final offering on the Day of Atonement. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about the priesthood. We'll talk about the service of the priest, the garments of the priest, his activities, and each of these does have significance in their symbolisms of Christ. Now, in Israel's religious economy, the priest, especially the high priest, was at the center of worship. He was the one who directed the worship with singular duties. He is the main person on the Day of Atonement. Now, if you look at the first scripture in Exodus 28, verse 1, this is the command for the selection of priests. Exodus 28, verse number 1. God speaks to Moses, And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar, Aaron's sons. Now if you go on reading in this chapter, you'll see that Aaron is the prominent one. He's outfitted in special garments and he's charged with solemn duties to take the chief place among all of the priests. All of the priests come from the tribe of Levi. Moses and Aaron were both Levites. And although there were many men who had descended from Levi, it was only Aaron's family among all of them that was singled out specially for priesthood. The rest of the Levites were also involved in the worship of God, but they had other areas of service. Uh, especially in the transportation and the setup of the tabernacle as they moved it from place to place. And then there were singers and there were attendants. And by the time of David, there was a system of rotating worship between priest and attendants. But the only ones that could serve in the tabernacle proper, the only ones who could make sacrifices, are the sons of Aaron. The consecrated items of the tabernacle was not to be seen by others. They were not to be touched by others. Everything has to be covered. Only priests can do this service for the Lord. Now, the exclusivity of priesthood was demonstrated at the return of Judah from the captivity. After Judah had been 70 years in Babylon, they returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls and to rebuild the, the temple. And before the priests and the Levites could serve there, they had to be vetted. Their genealogy had to be checked to see, are they truly descendants of Levi? And priests, are they truly descendants of Aaron? And there were some of them that were excluded because it couldn't be proved by their genealogy that they were descendants. Now, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 5, uh, this is the text passage for the first part of our study regarding the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. For every high priest taken from among men, is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, 
that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor under himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorifieth not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the concept of priesthood was not unknown to Israel before God gave the law at Mount Sinai. Now, before the law, the people understood that they must have an intercessor to stand between them and God. In the earliest concepts of priesthood, it was the father, the one who's the head of the house. He stood as a priest for his family. I think most of you know that the oldest book in the Bible is Job, and the events that are in Job precede the law. Most likely they go back to the time before Abraham. And this was before Abraham was given the promise that he would become the father of many nations. This was before God had a special chosen people that would be the Jews that came from Abraham. And it's also before there was a priesthood that was established in which Christ would be the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In that time... Job understood, though no priesthood of a formal sort had been given, yet Job understood there must be someone to stand between his children and God to make a sacrifice. And so in the first chapter of Job, Job interceded for his children. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. And so there we see Job acting as a priest for his family. But then, in Job chapter 9, in verses 32 and 33, Job also recognized that there must be someone to stand between him and God. He said, For he is not a man, as I am that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. In verse number 37, the mediator between man and God is called a daysman. And that word conveys the sense of a lawyer or an advocate that argues man's case before a judge. So Job understood this need, and he longed for one who would take care of, to, to go to God for him and to satisfy God for whatever issues that Job perceived that God had against him. Now the construct of mediation is understood because there is this impassable gap between us and God that we and God dwell on different planes. Or as Job said here, he is not a man that we should enter judgment with him. 
Well, besides the father who acted as a priest of the household, the first mention that we have of a priest is in Genesis chapter 14. This is the story of Abraham and his return from the defeat of the kings when he went to rescue Lot. And the priest that's in that passage of Genesis 14 is called Melchizedek, and he uniquely served as both a king and a priest. That was 500 years before the Mosaic Law, so that Melchizedek was not of the Levitical priesthood. And then from Melchizedek to Moses, there isn't any mention of a priest for the Lord's people. So it wasn't God's intention that Melchizedek would serve as a prototype of Israel's priest. He is not a type of the Aaronic priesthood, but he is a type of a superior priesthood, which is that of Jesus Christ. And that's indicated by both offices combined in one man, that of priest and king. That's an arrangement that's impossible under the Mosaic system. So kings and priests were separate, and there were examples of God's wrath on kings that intruded into the duties of the priesthood. In the time of Isaiah, Uzziah, who was the king, uh, went into the temple to offer a sacrifice, and God struck him with leprosy for that intrusion. And then, before Israel escaped the wilderness, there were wicked men who tried to elevate themselves to priesthood. They weren't satisfied that Aaron and his son should be the only priests, and so they decided, well, we need to be priests too. We ought to be able to form priestly functions. We see this in Numbers chapters 16 and 17, when Moses backed down the sons of Korah on this issue of priesthood, and then God swallowed them up in an earthquake and consumed them and their families. So the priesthood was distinct. It's peculiar to one family, that is to Aaron. Now, although kings were higher in authority than the priests in Israel, none of them dared attempt to perform priestly duties. The prevention of kings to enter into priesthood is for this one purpose, and that is to protect the privilege of Jesus Christ as both priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that doesn't mean that Aaron was not a type of Christ, because he was, but he's a type of Christ in a lesser role. That is in only one aspect of Christ's work, and that is priesthood. Christ is a better priest. He's the greatest priest of all, truly the great high priest and the apostle of our confession, as Hebrews 3 verse 1 says. He is better than Aaron. And that's what the author of Hebrews goes about to to describe, and as aptly does so telling us that Jesus is better. Well, let's examine God's institution of the priesthood. And I want us to look to see what what makes the priesthood special above all the duties of people in Israel. So first we want to look at the purpose of the call. Before the establishment of priesthood, there were prophets. Moses was a prophet. He was a great man of God, but he wasn't a priest. Someone gave this definition of the difference between a prophet and a priest. A prophet told out God to man, while a priest told out man to God. Primarily, it's the responsibility of a prophet to give God's message to man. But the priest is one who brings God's problem, or man's problems to God. Sometimes these two things intersected where... We find a man like Samuel, who is both a prophet and a priest. Ezra was both a prophet and a priest. But normally, those two offices were distinct, and priests in the Scriptures didn't give homilies. They didn't preach sermons like a 
prophet did or as a pastor does today. But there are some who want to preserve the Old Testament priesthood. Roman Catholicism takes its understanding of the priesthood from the Old Testament rather than the New. And so their priests wear holy garments, they make the sacrifice of the Mass, and they stand as mediators between the people and God. But the New Testament pastor is, and preacher is not a priest in that sense. The Bible teaches us that every believer is a, is a believer priest, and so you have the right to go to God based upon the mediation of Christ, not because of any work that I might do in your behalf. The New Testament prophet or preacher is one who speaks God's Word, and by that I mean the already revealed Word of God that we find in the Scriptures. So he's not a mediator as an Old Testament priest. This call to priesthood was a unique call. And in the text of Exodus 28, God called only Aaron and his sons. He said, they shall serve as priests. And as I mentioned, there was that showdown with Korah that showed who God chose. So this unique call of God on Aaron is, is uh, confirmed in Numbers chapter 18. So if you want to take your Bible and turn to Numbers 18, we can see this confrontation. This is right, right along that time with the sons of Korah. And we have this confirmation as God showed his people who is and who is not God's chosen. So in Numbers 18, verse number 1, And the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. Or in other words, Aaron, this is your responsibility. The holy, the holy sanctuary is yours and none others. And thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. And thy brethren also of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of thy father, bring thou with thee, that they may be joined unto thee and minister unto thee. In other words, the Levites are your ministers not to serve in the tabernacle. But thou and thy sons with thee shall minister before the tabernacle of witness. And they shall keep thy charge and the charge of all the tabernacle. Only they shall not come nigh the vessels of the sanctuary and the altar, that neither they nor ye also die. And they shall be joined unto thee and keep the charge of the tabernacle of the congregation for all the service of the tabernacle. And a stranger shall not come nigh unto you. And ye shall keep the charge of the sanctuary and the charge of the altar, that there be no wrath any more upon the children of Israel. Now, as I said, this is right after this, this scene with, with uh, uh, Korah, the sons of Korah and all of that. Only the sons of Aaron are the priests. Other Levites can help in the other areas, but they cannot be in the priesthood. They're to stay out of the tabernacle. Now, at this point, I need to stop and sermonize just a little. I need to give you a practical application of this information before we go on. In the New Testament church, God calls specifically. Each of you is called to serve in worship. Now, we could say that you are the modern-day Levites. But you're not called to do the work of the pastor. God sets that work apart specially for qualified men that he gives for the service of the pastorate. I don't claim that arrogantly of myself. I don't think of myself as something special. I'm a sinner. Any ability that I have does not come from me. It comes from whatever God gives. 
And neither do I think that I'm superior to any of you. I don't claim anything for myself other than the distinction that God makes between us because of this particular type of service. And so we see in the Old Testament that Aaron was not better than his fellows, but he was chosen from among them. And as we've already seen in the sacrifices, the first thing that Aaron had to do before he could represent Christ, he had to make a sacrifice for himself. And that's because he was a sinful man chosen from among sinful men. It's God's choice for the office. And others have to be careful about intruding into the work and the authority of those that God chooses. That includes the office of the pastor. That doesn't mean that we can't have one of the other men come and stand behind the pulpit and preach and to teach as we often do. But it does mean that all others, all other church members must defer to the pastor as the man that God has given the, the uh, charge of discharging the duties of shepherding the flock. The pastor must be a faithful man, and if he's judged to be, if he is judged to be faithful, then you are to let the pastor do God's work. And you are to obey him as he does God's work. So it's not church members' business to challenge the leadership of the pastor. If his decisions are don't violate God's word and they're based in good biblical principles, then it's your, your, your duty to follow the pastor without hesitation, without reservation. What you must do is to trust that the Holy Spirit is leading the church through the pastor. Now in Hebrews chapter 5, we see that the call of priesthood is God's, not man's. And no man, verse number 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now God made the call. Then you notice in this scripture how that the author compares that to Christ. His purpose is to show the superiority of Christ's priesthood by, by demonstrating that he fulfilled the Aaronic priesthood in perfection in ways that Aaron could not do. So even Christ did not choose himself. He was selected by the Father to do this work, and there was divine agreement that he would become our great high priest. This text in Hebrews defines four unique, unique duties in the service of priesthood. First, we see in verse number 1 that there is the duty of sacrifice. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now note that carefully. It is the priest who offers for sin. There's no Israelite that can pick up his animal or lead his animal to the tabernacle, walk into that enclosure, and then kill that animal, hoist it up on the altar, and then approach the sanctuary to sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice. Now we read this in Numbers chapter 18. We just looked at that. They dare not assume any priestly duty that they have not been called to do. The priest is the only offer. And that's to keep in mind these two spiritual planes, that they exist and they are to be kept separate. Men cannot go directly to God without a sacrifice and a priest to make that sacrifice. 
So the priest is the one who bridges the gap, bridges the gap between man and God. And that priest work is a singular work, as Christ was the high priest, the only one by which we come to God. A few weeks ago, uh, Leno spoke at Sarai's graduation, and he ably made this point that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no one who goes to the Father but by him. And I know, I'm sure of this at least, that Leno had a pointed purpose in that statement, why he made that with certain family members that were in attendance. And so does Jesus have a pointed purpose in that original statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he tells us is that the sacrifice, the, the, the job of sacrifice, the duty of sacrifice is his. That the way to the Father is his. That there is no one who can intrude to go to God without him. Now you've heard me preach it many times, that in your prayers you must come in Jesus' name. He's the only one that grants authority to go to the Father. You must believe in him in order to have him act on your behalf. He is the mediatorial priest, the daysman between you and the Father. So as we break down tabernacle worship, it's the priest alone who offers. The burning on the altar is Christ alone suffering for sin. The cleansing at the labor is Jesus alone washing us in regeneration. The sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat is Christ alone making this unique payment acceptable to God. So it is the priest that represents Christ. And an Israelite that stepped out of bounds to do a priest work ruined the typology of the special one who has been chosen for service. He is the only begotten of God. He is unique in his work. And that gives us a sense of the seriousness of what went on in that showdown in the book of Numbers. It it's ruins the type of Jesus Christ as the only one who can take us to God. Secondly, in this passage, we find the duty of compassion. Verse number 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Compassion is achieved by Christ's identification. It's by like experience that he is able to sympathize with those that are in need. This is the way that a priest was. He, he was a man. He's not an angel. He's not supernatural. He is a man among men. He experienced the same turmoils of life as them. And supernatural beings don't experience what we experience. To identify with man, Christ had to become a man. And so he walked in man's shoes, and that enabled him to feel what we feel. There isn't anybody who can complain that Jesus does not know what I'm going through. I have peculiar problems. I have special things. I have special needs. I have something above and beyond what Jesus knows anything about. No, nobody can complain how hard it is to live by God's standards. Hebrews chapter 2 explains, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be made... Uh, that he behooved him made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself 
hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And so lest you complain when you are tempted, Christ is not going to let that complaint stand. The complaint is not true. He was tempted in all points as we are tempted. In fact, Christ was tempted in greater ways than we're tempted. He knew the weakness of our flesh. And to withstand it as a human, and remember this, Jesus was man, he's God in the flesh, and to withstand what he went through as a human, he had to do exactly what you and I do. The only way he could withstand it is reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And that's what we do. We have the same power to rely on to resist all of our temptations. We read here that he's able to succor. That is to have compassion with sincere expression. So that he says to us, I know what you're going through. And I can help you. There's some of you that endure things that your friends think it's just impossible. They don't know Christ. And they think it's impossible that you can do what you do. They don't understand it. When they can't get out of bed, when they can't face another day, you do. When sleep even escapes you and you trudge on, you do so because you have someone to lean on. And that's always Jesus Christ. He is always there. He's always present with us. Now sometimes people think that pastors say such things as this and they're just... They're just Empty, hollow promises. These are things that we say that when somebody is grieving and they want to talk to us, that we just try to get them off of our back. But I said, well, just take that to Jesus. He, he's been through everything. He knows what you're going through. So you don't really need to bother me. You can just talk to Jesus. Well, I'm going to tell you, though, that this is not trivially a trivial advice when a pastor tells you you can lean on Jesus Christ. This is not a trivial thing. He is there... And saints of God in centuries past have been able to go on. They could face everything they went through, any experience that they were in, because they knew that Christ had already been through it. There's not a pit that you can fall in that Christ has not already been there. And I can't explain exactly how this works. I don't know how the Lord does this, but He has a way of impressing the mind with comfort. When you truly trust in Him, He gives confidence. He transfers his strength to us. I can't explain that, but I do know that it works. And so we don't need drugs. We don't need booze to drown our sorrows. We have Christ. Why should we turn to anything else when we have a compassionate Savior who knows everything that we've been through? You see, choosing a priest from among a people is God's wisdom, isn't it? Who else would do this? Only God. He knows all of our excuses. So God, thinking ahead of us all the time, He carefully removes all of the excuses by having Christ experience all these things before us. Now thirdly, the priest had the duty of mediation. In Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement is the discussion. God spoke to Moses in verse number 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now where, where do we see a mediator in this verse? The priest shall make an atonement for you. In other words, you don't go to God yourself. 
Likewise, in Hebrews 5, it said that the priest is ordained to make the sacrifice. That is the mediation. As our priest, this is the way that Christ acts on our behalf. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, in the tabernacle, there is only one acceptable mediator. In God's temple in heaven, there is only one acceptable mediator. Now, as great as Moses was, he couldn't do what Aaron did. Prophets and kings have to step back for the work of this man who is the priest. Now, at the foot of Sinai, we know that Moses stood in the breach between man and God. But when it came to worship and the establishment of the priesthood, Moses couldn't do Aaron's duties. Now, in the Romish system, there are many mediators. Dead saints are canonized. They're made mediators. Patron saints are mediators. Angels are mediators. And then, of course, most notorious is the veneration of Mary as a co-redemptrix and co-mediator with Jesus Christ. In Roman Catholic doctrine, Mary has more status than Christ. The Apostle Paul said, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. One of the most popular popes of all time was John Paul II. It said that his devotion to Mary outstripped all of the other popes. In 1981, he had a monument dedicated to Mary and put in St. Peter's Square. And he said, Now all who come to St. Peter's Square may raise their eyes to Mary to greet her with filial trust and prayer. At his death, his casket was made of a simple cypress wood, but engraved upon his casket was a cross and the letter M standing for Mary. And there was a correspondent who noted that the M was for Mary and said the Pope had special devotion to her. So much for glorying only in the cross of Jesus Christ. John Paul II believed that the M in Mary stood for mediation. That is a mockery of the scriptures. That is a heinous sacrilege that denies the unique call of God on Jesus Christ as the only mediator. That's travesty against the work of the cross. And that's an error that's not minor. Folks, we're not talking about another interpretation of Christianity. We're speaking of the doctrine of devils. Preachers of New Testament doctrine, Baptists, in the church age, even Protestants of the Reformation were not afraid to thunder against the Pope and those perversions, and they said he is the Antichrist. But things have changed in 500 years since our forefathers felt the wrath of Rome's indignation. These are men that died proclaiming that Christ is the only mediator, and that's a doctrine that can never be changed and still maintain the integrity of the cross. So simply stated, the Pope intrudes upon the office of Christ and he brings his devils with him. But you don't hear that from Protestants and from Baptists much anymore because largely there's a march back to Rome. And that lends itself to the supposition that the revelation of the Antichrist may not be all that far away. Now finally is the duty of intercession. Intercession is closely connected with mediation, 
the priest must pray for the people, and that's also demonstrated in tabernacle worship. In the 12th verse of Exodus 28, And thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. Now, I know that you don't understand that verse yet. This is going to be a part of our discussion of the priest's garments, but what I'd like to do is just pull out one part of this that will come way down the road in another sermon. And I want to pull out this part that represents the, the intercession of the priest for the people. On the shoulders of the priest, on Aaron, there was a stone. On each stone, on, on each shoulder, there's a stone that's engraved with the names of the six tribes. Six are on one shoulder and six are on the other. And Aaron wore those stones as a connector for the front and back of the ephod, which is a garment that he wore over the robe of the ephod and over his linen garments. And the picture is to show that the weight of Israel's welfare was on Aaron's shoulders, that he bore the burdens before the Lord of the sanctuary. On the inside of the sanctuary, there was a, uh, where the veil was, right before the veil, there stood an altar of incense, and that altar symbolized the prayers of the people, and Aaron would go to that altar and burn incense representing the prayers, and then he would smear blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice on the horns of that altar. Now you've already learned in our studies that horns represent power, and the horns of the altar symbolize the power of prayer as Christ brings, the great high priest brings our prayers before the Father. Now, I think most of you in here are thoroughly convinced there is power in prayer. When Victor asked us to pray for him, he didn't do that because he thought it was useless. No, because there is power in prayer. Now, authority, Aaron's authority to pray was the blood of the sacrifice. The blood that's slain on the outside on the brazen altar. And then he took that blood on the inside and he put it on the horns of the altar. So he never approached there without blood. And likewise, Christ took his blood into the sanctuary in heaven. And that blood symbolizes that life has been taken. That death is necessary for atonement, for salvation and intercession. And so what we see here is this very close connection of the priest of sacrifice to the sacrifice itself. These are two things that are melded together. One goes with the other in their depictions of Christ and his duties as our great high priest. Aaron's priesthood was not perfect. And so the author of Hebrews goes on to explain that there is a better, more enduring priesthood that's necessary. And therefore, Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron. So this is our theology of priesthood. Sacrifice, compassion, mediation, and intercession. That is the work of priest. And Christ did all of that in satisfaction to the Father. And we'll continue to talk about this over the next few weeks. What, how Aaron and the garments in Exodus chapter 28 represent the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 
6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.